Good evening, church family. Thank you so much for tuning in to our midweek service. Uh, as you know, we've been going through First uh, Corinthians chapter 15 in a sermon series entitled Resurrection Hope. And tonight we're going to be examining verses 29 through 34. These are some very intriguing verses. And so uh, I'm looking forward to diving deeper with you and seeing what the Lord has to say to us. Let's read these verses together and then go to the Lord and ask for his blessings over um, our preaching of his text. Paul says in verse 29, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge. I speak this to your shame. Let's go to the Lord and ask his blessings over uh, this word. Father, we come before you now asking that you might help us see the truth in these verses. That you might impress that truth upon our hearts, Lord, that we um, might be those who contend for the faith. Father, grant us your grace now in this endeavor we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's be honest, there is a general disregard for doctrine in the modern church today. Uh, the neglect of teaching that we see has, has spun as a commitment often to unity or even promoted as for the sake of reaching others. But the results of our neglect of doctrine has, has been a growing ignorance of God's word that inevitably leads to a greater toleration for sin and false views of the Christian faith. Today, it seems to be that truth is dispensable. Truth is irrelevant. And sometimes truth is even dangerous. Well, the big idea of our text this evening is that truth matters. In fact, that's the title of our sermon. It, it's truth matters. This passage can be summarized in those two words. Truth matters. What we believe matters. The absence of truth does not lead to greater unity. It leads to greater sin. Uh, the vacuum created by superficiality is filled with half-truths about who God is, who we are, what sin is, and what Christ has done to save us from it. See, God teaches his people to be students of his word. So what we're going to do is we're going to go line by line, verse by verse in this section and look at how this passage encourages us to be those who contend for the faith, to confess together that truth matters. Look at what Paul writes in verse 29. We'll start with this one right off the bat. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? See, the practices of some in Corinth are inconsistent with their denial of the resurrection. 
The practices of some in Corinth are inconsistent with their denial of the resurrection. That's really Paul's point in this verse. Now, obviously, when we read this, when we read this verse, we, can, we know that there are some interpretive difficulties, right? Uh, this is uh, one of those verses. In fact, one commentator, commentator had cited that there were over 200 different uh, interpretations of verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 15. But what's interesting about these interpretations is that the problem doesn't lie actually in the Greek itself. The Greek is actually very clear. Uh, the difficulties lie in what do we do with this verse? Uh, on a plain reading of the text, it seems to be saying that there were people who were being vicariously baptized on behalf of the dead. There were some people who were actually baptized on behalf of people who had already died. Now, there are several challenges in understanding what Paul is saying. And really, those two challenges fall into two separate categories. You have historical challenges and theological challenges. We'll deal with them in turn. First, historical challenges with this particular verse. Beyond this verse, the New Testament is completely silent on this practice. The New Testament has nothing to say on this type of vicarious baptism. So we gain nothing from studying the rest of Scripture on what was happening in Corinth. Furthermore, there is also no record of any such practices in any of the churches in Orthodox Christian communities uh, in, in the following centuries or the preceding centuries of the apostolic era. So historically, there's, there's no information on this whatsoever. We don't gain much help there as well. And furthermore, there is no precedent, there is no parallel practice in even any pagan or contemporary religions at this time. This has led Gordon Fee to comment in his commentary referring to this verse. This is a genuinely idiosyncratic historical phenomenon. Well, beyond the difficulties of understanding this passage in light of its historical context, there are theological challenges as well within this verse. Uh, this practice of vicarious back baptism would seem to contradict justification by grace through faith alone, right? Uh, the fact that a person is made right only through faith in Jesus Christ. So what benefit could possibly be derived from someone being be baptized on behalf of someone who had already died? Uh, furthermore, this whole idea of vicarious baptism seems to involve an almost magical view of sacramentalism. Uh, the, this participating in this sacrament, thinking that that in itself could somehow magically benefit someone who had already died. Questions arise, right? Was the goal of these vicarious baptisms meant to grant some sort of spiritual benefit for those who are dead? Was the hope that the act of the living would somehow be transferred to the person who had already perished? This is difficult to reconcile with what we find in the rest of the scriptures. Lastly, and I think this is the thing that was most troubling for me, and it's, it's probably most troubling for some, is that Paul doesn't seem to necessarily condemn it here. He, he just is stating it, and he's not condemning it. He's just stating it as a matter of fact. There's no commentary. There's no judgment. So we ask the question, if he's not condemning it, is he therefore condoning it? 
really hard to imagine, isn't it, when we read the rest of the New Testament? Now, what, what form the baptism actually took and what it was believed to accomplish, really, friends, it's, it's impossible to say. At best, we can speculate, but in the end, we must admit ignorance. And so, here is the actual question that I came to when studying this text. Is this verse useless? Uh, the answer is, is obviously, of course not. This does not mean we cannot understand the point of this verse or benefit from it in any way. After all, we know that this is God's word. This verse, as well as every other verse in Scripture, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So despite the interpretative difficulties, Paul's point is clear. The actions of those who are being baptized on behalf of the dead... They contradict the position that there is no resurrection of the dead. He, he's saying, you're doing this and this doesn't make sense. He says, if the dead are not raised, why would people be concerned about doing anything for those who have perished? Remember, Paul's already driven home the point that if the dead are not raised, then if Christ is not raised, and if, if Christ is not raised, then we're still dead in our sin. And, and then the dead haven't just fallen asleep if we're still dead in our sin, then they've actually perished. Their bodies are gone. So Paul's not condoning this practice here. He's not encouraging us to participate in vicarious baptisms for those who have gone before us. Paul does not endorse the practice merely by mentioning with an erroneous denial of the resurrection of the dead. No. But regardless, Paul saw the practice as a clear contradiction of the present stance of the community of the large. That there was no resurrection. That's the point. The point is truth matters. Either they should confess the dead are raised, and at least then what you're confessing would go along with what you're actually doing, or stop doing it because you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead anyway. Make up your mind. The truth matters. Now, as we move on, Paul is going to move on and offer his life in apostleship as further example of absurdity in light of the denial of the resurrection of the dead. Not only is it absurd to practice what they're practicing if they deny the resurrection, but Paul's life is absurd if there is no resurrection. We see this really in verses 30 through 32. Let's read those as a group and then we'll come back and go through each one individually. It says, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I want you to notice that the Christian labor, marked as it is often by sacrifice and suffering, is absurd if there's no resurrection of the dead. Paul opens with a question here, right? In, in verse 30, again, he says, why are we also in danger every hour. The we in this verse refers to Paul and those who are laboring with Paul in Christian ministry by his side. Paul's getting personal here. And then he quickly turns the we into an I as Paul is going to offer his own experience as a contradiction to the denial of the resurrection. The question, by the way, is rhetorical. The answer is supposed to be self-evident. And the point of the question is to lead to the reader to answer the question maybe in these words. You, you won't expose yourself, Paul. 
You won't expose yourself to danger every hour if there is no resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection, then you're still dead in your sins and you're actually a liar against God. Why would you put yourself in danger every hour if that's the case? Well, in addition, this question, what follows, seems to illustrate a point that Paul has been making throughout the letter to the Corinthians. That is weakness, suffering, sacrifice. Those are really the marks of a true apostle, not natural strength and prestige. Weakness, suffering, and sacrifice are the marks of a true apostle. They're also the marks of Christian service. Some in Corinth seem to oppose Paul and his apostleship because he's not your typical itinerant preacher. As Paul writes himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3 and 4, he says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Uh, this weakness, this fear, this trembling, it gave opportunity for some in Corinth to begin to make fun of Paul, to ridicule him, to attack his authority and his apostleship. Well, Paul addresses this opposition, interestingly enough, not by refuting it, not by saying, well, that's not true. I, I actually am very well educated. In fact, my evangelistic efforts have given rise to many plant, church plants throughout the known world. No, he doesn't say that. Instead, Paul writes earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 10 through 13, he says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our hands when we are reviled. We bless when we are persecuted. We endure. When we are slandered, we try to uh, conciliate. We have become as scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Don't miss this, by the way. Itinerant preachers in Paul's day, they made a good living. Uh, they would enter a town, they'd, they'd gather many disciples around them, and they would often receive a handsome reward for the rhetorical abilities. It was common for them to be in the upper class. Both uh, financial compensation and fame were marks of a great teacher in Paul's day. But Paul, in stark contrast to the norm, he is underpaid and he is largely underappreciated. He was weak. He's held in disrepute. He's hungry, poorly dressed. He's forced to work with his own hands. He's a blue-collar guy. He's reviled, persecuted, and slandered. In fact, Paul had become like the scum of the world, a big pile of trash for the sake of the gospel. That's Paul's resume. That's his resume. This is how he refutes his opposition to his apostleship. They say, Paul is weak. Paul, you're unimpressive. And he retorts, yup, sure am. Actually, it's worse than that. I'm treated like a big pile of trash. And not only that, but Paul is a weak vessel carrying a foolish message. Paul's a weak vessel carrying a foolish message. It's not just Paul uh, himself. It's the very message he's proclaiming that's foolishness. Listen, the message that Paul carries, it's difficult to receive because of the unimpressiveness of the messenger. Paul would write earlier, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Chapter 1, verse 18. 
Paul preached, remember, a servant's king who died a sinner's death. That's Paul's message. We have so much distance from the original context, I think we often miss the scandal of the message. We forget that this message was propagated mostly by uneducated fishermen, many of whom suffered similar fate as their king being handed over and killed at the hands of their enemies. Do we really get this? I mean, are, are we really that different from the Corinthians? Don't we often just diffuse the problem by ignoring the suffering and sacrifice that marks the lives of many who follow Christ? Don't we try just to move really quickly past that? Don't we prefer to think about our victorious king and his victorious messengers filling stadiums around the world and winning converts in every nation? Don't get me wrong, praise God for open doors. Doors are just sometimes swung wide open, yes, but let us evaluate our theology to ensure that our theology is a theology of the cross, not a theology of man-centered glory. We are pilgrims, church, in enemy territory, suffering. Yes, King Jesus is victorious. We saw that clearly last week. Christ will return as the victorious king. When he returns, all of his enemies will, yes, be finally and utterly destroyed. That is our hope. But it is that hope that ensures we will endure through the trials, the sufferings, and the temptations. Until that day comes, we have to take up our crosses. Let's remember the saints of old, those who have gone before us, who have laid down their lives for the sake of Christ and his gospel. We we minimize this too often. I think if we're honest, part of the reason we're able to avoid so much suffering in this life is because we willingly ignored the truth. We've been unwilling to stand against sin. If If we stand for truth, if we stand against sin, if we proclaim Christ in the full counsel of God, friends, we will suffer. Ours is a theology of the cross, not of man-centered glory. Not yet. Not glory yet, anyways. Paul goes on in verse 31 to state where the proof of his apostleship lies. Look what he says in verse 31. He says, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Paul is is stating, I suffer every hour. I know this makes me look weak in your eyes, but I, I protest you are the proof of my apostleship. The proof is obviously not in Paul's strength or his power, but it's in the evidence of changed lives. That's what he wants them to see. Evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit regenerating people through the ministry of Paul. That's the proof Paul has. The proof he has that his his authority is from Christ and his message is true. His message remembers the very power of God to those who are being saved. So Paul states a kind of oath in verse 31. Your conversion is evidence that my suffering is not in vain. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, you are my proof. And then we move on to verse 32, and there are two sentences here. The first sentence further elaborates on what Paul had just said in verses 30 and 31. And the second sentence is going to tie it back to the rest of his argument through that familiar conditional clause. If the dead had not been raised, which we've heard over and over again. So let's read verse 32 together now. 
If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Paul's offering here a practical example. Remember, he's just elaborating on what he said in verses 30 and 31. He's offering a very practical example of his danger every hour, right? His, his dying daily, fighting with wild beasts at Ephesus. Now, this really should be understood metaphorically and not literally. We know that for three reasons. There's three reasons this is to be understood metaphorically. One, Paul's still alive, right? If it is possible, yes, that Paul fought with wild beasts at Ephesus and survived it, but it's highly unlikely. Secondly, uh, such a metaphor as fighting with wild beasts, it was, a, it was a common metaphor in a Hellenistic, moralistic literature. It would have been readily understood metaphorically. Lastly, Paul's Roman citizenship would have exempted him from that type of execution or punishment. Remember, Paul was a Roman citizen. And being a Roman citizen, he had certain rights. And one of those is that they were exempt from different punishments and executions, including being torn apart by wild beasts. He's, he's most likely referring to human opposition here. But either way, Paul's point's the same, isn't it? What does Paul gain if there's no resurrection? Without the future resurrection, Paul's earthly struggles, they just don't make any sense. They're absurd. Well, then in the second sentence of verse 32, Paul uses the same conditional clause as I said previously. If the dead are not raised, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, it's easy just to read this at face value and say, well, Paul's just saying, if the dead are not raised, let's, let's party it up. It doesn't matter. But what Paul's doing is even deeper than that. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 13. And in that passage in Isaiah 22, Jerusalem had been attacked and I, Isaiah is addressing the people of God. Remember, Isaiah is, is the mouthpiece of God right now, right? He's addressing a Jerusalem who had responded to an attack by fortifying Jerusalem through man-centered efforts and had developed an attitude of complete disregard. Uh, there was no repentance, uh, no turning to God, no crying out for help. Instead, they're throwing a party. It, it appears that they did not believe or they did not care that God was sovereign. And the general attitude of disregard toward God and his promises uh, it leads them to throw a party in the face of imminent danger. <laughs> Instead of seeking God who would save them in face of impending attack, Jerusalem was instead barbecuing and breaking out the kegs. Uh, let's look at the context of that quote more closely so that we make sure we understand. God had sent Judah's enemies to punish them for breaking the covenant. Uh, they were responding by preparing for an attack, yes, but they were expecting to be conquered. And so they did the best they could to prepare for an attack, but at the same time, they thought, really, all we can do is, is slow this down. And so in Isaiah 22, 10 and 11, the, the verse that precedes the quote Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 15, Isaiah writes in verses 10 and 11 of Isaiah 22 these words, Then you counted the houses of Jerusalem and tore down houses to fortify the wall. And you made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool. But you did not depend on him who made it, nor did you take into consideration him who planned it long ago. Who was it who made it? 
Who was it that brought this nation against Judah? It was God. God was bringing the rod of correction against his people. The response should have been to turn to him, to cry out to help uh, from him, but instead they're throwing a party. Let's see in the text of Isaiah in verse 13, it says, therefore in that day, the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head and wearing of sackcloth. That's a picture, remember, of repentance. He called for weeping and wailing. The men should have shaved their heads, should have covered themselves with sackcloth, sackcloth, repented and recognized this has happened because we've broken our covenant with God. But Isaiah continues. He says, instead, there's gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. So let's connect this back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul sees this passage as an example of the attitude that's harbored by many in the church at Corinth. Some in Corinth are ignorant of God. They have no regard for deep and lasting truth. They're not looking towards him who who did it, nor did the Corinthians see him who planned it long ago. Just as the Israelites fortified Jerusalem, the Corinthians are fortifying their theology with man-centered doctrine. Instead of believing the, the plain teaching of the apostles about the resurrection, just like the Israelites, they are settling for momentary pleasures like eating and drinking. The Corinthians are settling for a temporal kingdom here and now instead of waiting for the king. The Corinthians are going on like all is fine, just like the Israelites were when they should have been weeping and mourning over their willingness to believe a false doctrine and their unwillingness to stand against it. Again, remember the big idea of this passage, truth matters. The Corinthians should be repenting Listen, friends, we need to repent. As a Christian culture at large, we have not stood against false doctrine as we should. We have allowed sin to transpire right before our very eyes, and we have been unwilling to stand against it. So so we need to repent. Well, now Paul's going to move on and really close out his entire argument all the way from verse 12 to 32 with an exhortation to repentance. This is how he's going to wrap it all up. This goes all the way back to verse 12 where Justin started so many weeks ago. His entire argument is going to be wrapped up in this exhortation. It is simply repent. Repent of your wrong thinking. Repent of your wrong thinking. What he says in verses 33 and 34. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Let's start once again in verse 33, where he says, Do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. It, It should be noted that there's a strong connection between much of the behavior happening in the church of Corinth, and if you remember the context, this is a church that's just complete with bad behavior. There's a, there's a connection between much of the behavior happening in the church of Corinth and this particular denial of the resurrection. This is why 1 Corinthians 15 stands out the way it does. Uh, much of all that's been addressed in this entire letter is stemming from the wrong view of things to come. As we've discussed at length, this is not a peripheral issue. 
the doctrine of the resurrection, it impacts how we live. In fact, that's part of the point. Truth impacts how we live. What we believe impacts how we live. Theology, therefore, it cannot be a pursuit of a few. What we believe about who God is, who we are, what sin is, how Christ has addressed our sins, and the age to come, all of those things will shape who we are and how we live. Secondly, we note Paul's opening exhortation here in verse 33, do not be deceived. This is an exhortation and a warning. Uh, Their present path is one of delusion, right? It is lined with falsehood, and if they do not heed this warning, they will suffer eternal consequences. And then finally, this, this phrase, bad company corrupts good morals, Paul's exhorting them to disassociate from those who promote a denial of the resurrection. In fact, all the way back in chapter 5, Paul had already given a similar command in regard to those who are sexually immoral, those who partake in gross, continual, unrepentant sin. He tells the Corinthians they need to separate discipline for such people. Now he says the same thing about those who believe something that contradicts the gospel. Hear me. This can be extremely challenging and even more challenging to apply. And so what I'd like to do is give you just a couple of reasons why this is so challenging and difficult to apply. Uh, the, The first is that we live in a culture that has redefined tolerance. We live now presently in a culture that has redefined tolerance. To be tolerant now means that we do not say anything that might offend someone else. We do not actually express any form of disagreement with those who hold opposing views. To not express opposing views is considered tolerance today. That's one of the reasons why it's so difficult. The second reason it's so difficult for us to hear and apply Paul's exhortation to disassociate from those who are teaching wrong doctrine is because we are not always mature enough to recognize and separate the peripheral issues from the fundamental doctrines of the faith. We're not always mature enough to to recognize what are secondary, even tertiary issues from those issues that are fundamental from our faith. Not always mature enough to recognize the difference between is this that important? Does this affect the gospel or is this merely peripheral? We struggle to recognize which is which and therefore we struggle to respond appropriately. That doesn't mean though that we don't respond. It means we desperately need to expose ourselves to sound biblical teaching. We desperately need to grow in maturity in Christ through his word. We desperately need to be better equipped to contend for the faith. And we do that with more truth, not less. Finally, we find this difficult to understand or accept or apply because there is a general derogatory attitude towards truth inside the church and outside. We've done something in church culture. We've separated the heart from the mind. Uh, Many believe that that you have to choose between heart knowledge and head knowledge. Christian, this is a false dichotomy. 
It is the root of many, many problems within the church of America. You cannot worship God without a right understanding of who God is. And that requires doctrine. After all, doctrine is simply teaching. That's what doctrine means. Christian doctrine is that teaching that comes from God, given to his children through his word. Listen, we all have doctrine. The the point is some of our doctrine has been shaped more by human ideas and past experience than by the word of the only true God. That's the problem. And, And so Paul concludes this way in verse 34. It's striking the way he concludes this This passage, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. So he really concludes with two commands here, doesn't he? Wake up from your drunken stupor and don't sin anymore. First, sober up. Sober up. This is a telling metaphor for the, for the present state of their delusion, isn't it? They are conducting themselves in a way that shows that they have no hope in a future resurrection. They have no vision for a future kingdom. Instead of eating and drinking, they should be living sober lives, recognizing that they are in enemy territory. And friends, we need to pay attention to what we believe and how we're living in light of those beliefs. Paul, Paul then continues with the second command, and I love this one. Stop sinning. I love this. Stop it. <laughs> this is more or less what he's saying here. Stop sinning. And of course, we know the primary sin in this context is believing and tolerating false doctrine, teaching that which compromises the gospel. Paul says, stop putting up with that. Paul says, don't go on sinning by teaching or allowing others to teach such things. Don't go on holding, promoting, or tolerating falsehood. To do so is sin, not love. Uh, The gospel is worth fighting for. Truth is worth fighting for. He says, this is is shameful. (laughs) This is to your shame. He's even shaming them here. He says, oh, that the the church today would would heed these words. We need to hear this. That you and I would repent of our superficial spirituality and seek hard after the deep truths of the faith. The church today, that we might repent of our arrogance that has despised the deposit of truth that has been handed down to us from our forefathers. Oh, that days of refreshing might come, a deep and lasting reformation that we would trust God with our heads and our hearts. Truth matters, friends. And it is to our shame to deny or neglect anything that the Lord has seen fit to teach us. I pray that you would take this truth in such a way that you'd be encouraged, friend. You and I are are called to be apologists. Uh, We we lost yesterday um, uh, what I believe to be a a dear man and a believer, uh, Ravi Zacharias, who is known as a Christian apologist, who who exudes such grace in so many ways, um, the way he handles and debates and engages with atheistic worldviews. Not a perfect man by any means, and not even somebody I think I would agree with fully uh, doctrinally in theology on some of those secondary and tertiary issues. But friends, uh, the point in, in making that is, is we need more people who contend for the faith with a graciousness that Ravi Zacharias did. 
And I had a wonderful time in light of this text this, this morning, um, studying it and, and even praying over it yesterday, that, I would, that the Lord would rise up people who would see that truth and doctrine matter. And that we don't have to separate the head and the heart today. That they go together. God created them to go together. The more we know this God of the universe, the more our hearts would yearn in emotion and love for him. I pray that would be the case for all of us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we do confess together that we have, have too long participated in falsehood. We found it easier to ignore things that are hard to learn or understand. We've not given ourselves to the study of the word like we should, Father. I pray that you draw us again. You draw us back to you. You draw us to the foot of the cross where we might meet with Christ and we might receive that grace upon grace upon grace that gives us a hunger for your word. Lord, a hunger to, to know Christ, a hunger to know you in the face of Christ as we meet him in the scriptures. Clothed in all the scriptures, the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation. Father, I pray that we'd study it all and I pray that we would contend for the faith not in a prideful way filled with arrogance, but in great humility knowing that we have come to hold the truth in the way that we hold it and the truth that we possess, Father, it is only given to us by grace. Lord, we're not smarter than anyone else. We're not wiser than anyone else. We've not even worked harder than anyone else, but you've given all things abundantly to us through your grace. And Father, we, we pray for more grace to stand firm against falsehood. That we'd rise up in a culture and call evil, evil. Once again, not with vindictive hearts, but with zealous hearts for the truth of the gospel, that we might not just win an argument, but we might win souls with the gospel of grace. Help us, Father. We're dependent upon you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church family. I love you so much. If you have any questions about some of the difficulty of this text, always please reach out and call me. Uh, I love hearing from you, and you know your pastor loves talking about the Word of God. So please uh, reach out if there's any more additional questions I can help you with. I love you, church family. God bless. Have a wonderful night.